Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. How, I'm just getting right into it today. Oh. How, how adept are you with social media? So, like on a scale from Zoomer to Boomer, or from zero to hero, or (laughs) Raven to Maven? What rhymes with Raven? Raven to Maven. Anyway. Raven. Raven, yeah. Yeah, I feel like that. Craven. Craven. I don't know. Uh, no, I mean, just because, like, what's what? What's your jam? What are you on? Are you uh, anything, I guess? Instagram, Twitter, MySpace? Did you have a MySpace? I had a day? MySpace. My favorite. <laughs> so I, I think Instagram, although I kind of, like, tuned completely out during the pandemic. So I heard that mm. a lot of things have changed on Instagram, perhaps. So I don't know that I would still know how to use it. But, um, but Instagram, I used to, I turned AIM into a social media opportunity when AIM was a thing. Like? AOL, AIM. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When that's all Turned there it was. Into social. Yeah. yeah. Back in the day when when we would, I don't know about you, but I'd create like really emo emo oh. away messages. We said emo yeah. at the same time. I knew that's what you were going to well, say. Well, because like it's, it's, it's AIM, yeah. right? If anybody's familiar, that's just like not everyone did it, but that was the place to do yeah. it. Yeah. The only option was an away message. I guess it was like the first Twitter almost. I'm on all the social most of the social media, but I do professionally. And so mm-hmm. I, I get home at the end of the day, home. I walk upstairs at the end of the day. And the last thing I want to do is like tweet something. Once in a while, you'll see a picture of my dog, but that's just about it. Did Tacoma have an account on TikTok? I have an account on okay. TikTok where I would do SciComm videos with Tacoma, oh, okay. my dog. Oh, Tacoma wasn't yeah. the boss. No, he, <laughs> he was the talent yes. though. Uh, and I loved it. It was a lot of fun, but they were frankly... Um, it was just, it was too much of a blending of that personal and professional, and it took a lot of time. But what's funny about this is I just taught this undergraduate class. Like, we know I just mm-hmm. got back from doing some field work, and I make no, all of my stuff's public. That's public. That's fine. And all of my students found me on TikTok and are now following me <sighs> on TikTok. things I never anticipated. It's fine, but things I never anticipated when making a TikTok account is whether my undergraduate students would follow me making silly science videos in my home with my dog. (laughs) (laughs) Science is fascinating, but don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. Okay, so what we're getting into today is much more important than our relationships with social media, if we're being honest. Uh, We're talking about an indigenous-led social network that's using modern technology to help traditional culture thrive. And so to better explain this, we're going to bring in producer Ty Burke. Hi, Ty. Hi, Shane. So what does that actually mean? Like, Explain it for us. Well, there's a digital platform that's called Siku, and it's being used by Inuit people all across the northern edge of North America. It's a mobile app and a social network that allows them to share information about the sea ice with each other. The Arctic Ocean, it's frozen for most of the year, and Inuit travel on top of the ice for all kinds of reasons. But one of the most important ones is to hunt and fish for food. Yeah, I imagine that getting to a grocery store isn't quite as simple as it could be for us in more major politan areas. Right. Grocery stores are incredibly expensive in northern communities and the food sources that the food that people obtain on the land is still very important to the to the diet of the people who live in these communities and to their culture too. The 
but climate change is having a disproportionate effect in the north. So the ice conditions are changing and wildlife migration patterns are changing too. That's where Siku comes in. Joel Heath of the Arctic Eider Society has worked with Inuit to develop this platform, which allows people to share up-to-date information about ice conditions, wildlife sightings, and various aspects of Inuit traditional culture. Wow. So there really, there is an app for everything. There is. So what makes Siku unique? Quite a bit. It's been designed to work where there's no cellular signal because there are no cell towers embedded in the sea ice. You know, this is... That's funny. It's like, oh, this is one of those moments where I think, of course there aren't. Like, right. <laughs> of course there wouldn't be cell towers. Right. And it's been built to address some of the specific cur- concerns that Inuit people have about the internet and academic research, too. One of the big ones is data privacy. People can choose who they share information with so that traditional knowledge can't be used without permission. Oh, that sounds like something other social networks could maybe learn a little bit from, huh? It probably is, but it also doesn't mean that all of the information that people are generating in Siku just stays on the app either. Users have been collaborating with academic researchers to advance our knowledge of climate change, and Inuit are able to provide additional context that can only come from a culture that's been engaged with polar ecosystems for thousands of years. All right, well, let's get into it. My name is Joel Heath. I'm the executive director of the Arctic Eider Society. We're a small Inuit-led charity based in Sanakilawak, Nunavut, in the heart of Hudson Bay. And uh, yeah, our main vision is around supporting thriving northern communities, and in particular in the three pillars around community-driven research, education, and environmental stewardship. And uh, it's really helping empower Indigenous knowledge frameworks and Indigenous self-determination and leading their own programs for for research, monitoring, and education. And could you explain what the CQ platform is and how how it helps achieve those aims? Yeah, for sure. Um, So our our programs have been really kind of working to combine Inuit knowledge and science together. Um, And, you know, in some cases that's helping train people on oceanographic equipment to address their priorities or other sorts of tools. But um, part of the, the the platform is like a social network, but it's, um, you know, what might be considered in other contexts, citizen science. Um, but it's a really important distinction for us that it's not about Inuit or Indigenous communities giving up their knowledge to academics. It's about empowering them to manage their own programs and to have full ownership, access and control over their own data to run their own programs and they can decide to share that with projects as they want to and they can make decisions about what's more public such as really important things like how there's dangerous ice nearby but they can also choose on a post-by-post basis um, whether they want something like their secret berry picking spot to be hidden or masked like you would mask a house on airbnb and that sort of thing and and what are some of the ways that inuit people are using this app what kind of information is being shared on Siku? In some cases, they might be more um, a cultural story, but in other cases, there are like describing the, uh, the topography or whatever the case might be that might be practical from a safety or a navigation perspective uh, and those sorts of things. And that's um, in some cases, just things like even um, we're working to put Anukshui on the app 
where people can crowdsource the positions of Anukshoks, take the picture, and maybe something happens and you lose satellite reception, but you can recognize the Anukshok based on the pictures offline and use that those traditional things for navigation. But some Anukshui also even indicate things like um, whether there's landlocked or sea-run fish in a lake, right? Some of them are more indicators of that. And all those things can be important for environmental monitoring and for subsistence hunting and those sorts of things. And could you explain what an Anukshuk is for listeners who might not be familiar with them? Oh, sure. Yeah, they're piled up rocks. Some of them are just simple markers that are pointing, but the the more proper Anukshui is kind of like, in some cases, they look a little bit like someone pointing. Um, and they're like markers for navigation often, but also for marking uh, other sorts of things that, like that might be more about knowledge for the area, but often for navigation um, or as Inuit say a lot. So the people will know we were here. Are, are people able to use the information about ice conditions to predict and anticipate um, either further ice conditions or, you know, wildlife migration patterns or, or any other insights that, you know, someone who doesn't have that expertise might totally miss in that language? For sure. Like Inuit, when someone shares some of those conditions on the app, they have the context to be able to interpret that and, and forecast. But are you asking um, if like, do researchers have access to use that data for forecasting? I meant Inuit. Yeah. I, I meant are Inuit able to, uh, to use that shared data uh, you know, to take that a further step so, or several further steps than, you know, someone like me, I can go on the app and I can, you know, I can look at some of the, you know, some of the things that people have posted. Right. But uh, I'm just wondering, like, if, if you, if you know of any examples where people are able to take something that someone posts and make judgments and predictions and, and choices, uh, based, based on that by reading, especially by reading into it more deeply, like this condition might result in that thing that I just wouldn't know as a layperson. Yeah, I I definitely know that people are using some of that information to like make decisions about safety and understand the timing of things and that, but people aren't currently posting those sorts of forecasting very much anyway. Um, you know, people are like, oh, that's a sign, maybe the geese are coming and you might see those sorts of comments and stuff sometimes. Um, but for sure, a lot, like, the, especially in the case of, like, uh, ice hazards, like the Sikramak crack, where if you cross it and the wind's coming from the wrong direction and you know that that's that type of crack, then you might make a decision, okay, I'm not going to go past that, especially when the wind's coming from this direction sort of thing. Um, and so I think that that is, it's important that, again, you, you're not going to learn how to, you know, go out and understand the ice based on just the app, right? Um, you need to learn from elders and from hunters and using your harpoon and uh, to know what's safe or not. But the app can kind of like give you more general context and help share information between hunters and so that people can use that to kind of like make their own sorts of assumptions based on their understanding of the system. And so can you talk a little bit about uh, how the app uh, 
you know, how it puts indigenous rights first and how you integrated that into to the approach? Sure. Um, that was like fundamental right from the beginning when we were, you know, consulting with a lot of different groups. We worked with a lot of youth uh, from programs like Akarvik and Nunavik uh, Nunavik the college program in Ottawa, but working to consult with a lot of the regional organizations, indigenous organizations, right? And we knew right from the beginning that it was going to be complicated, but that in some parts were fundamental, right? And so part of the problem was people were uploading everything to social media. Um, and then if you wanted to go back and find something and mobilize it, you couldn't. The other problem is that you're giving up your intellectual property rights and, you know, they weren't really a safe space for, like there was kids that had posted about like bowhead whale hunting in Alaska and stuff like that, that were getting seriously bullied on social media for engaging in their culture and stuff like that. And so all of those sorts of things were real considerations when we designed the whole privacy policy and framework of CQ. Um, and so the first important thing was that us, Arctic Eider Society, we're creating the platform, um, we're developing the technology, but we also don't own anything, right? So pretty much the opposite of what most other social networks are, like we wrote ourselves out of the privacy policy so that even we can't use information without um, permission. And so um, it allows full ownership, access and control um, over the information by the users. And so the next, so the privacy policy kind of sets it up, you know, you can, even if you can see something, you don't have the right to use it, right? It might be helping share information about safety, but that doesn't mean you can use it for your research just because you can create an account and you agree to these terms, but you still have to have that permission to use it and the stewardship. And then there's other ones around, you know, it's about respect for indigenous knowledge frameworks and no bullying and no fake news and <laughs> like posting slippery mud puddles maybe is, I don't know, it's dangerous ice, but you know, um, and about using your, your name and, and that sort of thing, right? Um, and then, so those are like the safeguards that protect people overall for the whole platform if you're going to assign and agree. And the biggest one for our, for the academic kind of side of things is around indigenous governance structures. And so obviously every region has their own policies and permitting and in Nunavut you need a letter of support from the community, often from the Hunters and Trappers organization, and you need to apply to the uh, Nunavut Research Institute for a license, often to the Department of Environment for a license. And basically the terms say you have to respect what's in place to do any research and to create a project on CQ. Um, and so part of our terms mean that you can't use our technology unless you respect the governance structures that you're working in. And that makes it scalable as things change in different regions and flexible to different indigenous governance structures in different regions. Um, and so that was a really important uh, part of it as well. And then the way it works for projects is if you have a project, people can join a project and then you have, you know, if you have your consent forms or whatever you would normally have, then, um, you know, that's kind of offline from CQ, but it's part of our guiding principles. And then if a member joins, is a, if someone joins a project and then they're making a post and they tag the project, 
So that mutual thing they remember and they tag it, then they're giving consent to steward their data. They still maintain their license, but they're providing a non-exclusive license to that project to use the data for their project. And so that's a framework that allows people to share data with their community-led projects or with researchers that might be working in the region and that sort of thing. And then the other side is on a post-by-post -post basis, you can choose the stewardship and privacy settings. And so um, you can separately choose the location, right? So you can make it people on so you can see it. Doesn't mean they can use it, but they can see it. Or it's masked like Airbnb or it's fully hidden. And then there's the privacy level, which is more about the content, right? So there's just like social media, there's a feed on CQ as well as the map. And you can browse the feed and you can see, you know, Johnny caught a seal or harvested a seal or whatever, right? But there's also, you can't dive into the details, right? There's a more button that would take you to the detailed post. And so you, that is basically can be restricted if you set the privacy between low where anyone can dive into the details if they want to, um, to the other end of it. So if you're, you can make it so that only other members of your project can see it, see the details or maximum security only, they can't even see the post at all unless they're a member or in most extreme, only the admins of the project can see it. So basically it makes it pretty simple. You can hide the location or not. You can choose the level of details that you want private to other people or just to project members or project admins. And so every combination permutation of those settings is possible on a post by post basis. So you can set them in your defaults and forget about them if you want. Um, and we're also building in more, project specific recommendations around that as different projects have uh, especially by indigenous organizations want to keep some things more confidential than others and so we're making that very flexible so that they can serve the needs for a variety of different kinds of projects and sensitive information while at the same time providing the same tools where people really want to reach uh, as many people as possible like such as where the ice is dangerous and uh, and I don't think I mentioned we have 11,000 users across the north. There's only 35,000 Inuit in the north, and there's uh, over 11,000 users now, tens of thousands of posts. And uh, so it's been pretty exciting to see that sort of uptake in usership. Uh, and I think a large part of it is because it was created with Inuit, for Inuit, and with Cree and, and other groups and that it respects those sorts of frameworks. And uh, so... We're a couple of years in now and just coming out the other side of the pandemic, hopefully. <laughs> so it's really exciting to kind of see uh, where this is going. And I think um, it's all based on scalable architecture, right? We can add new wildlife species and regions. And I think there's a framework here that uh, can really help support indigenous communities anywhere to be able to, to use it for their own needs and purposes. And that privacy stewardship stuff is a key part of that. So, wow, the expanse of this app is incredible. Yeah, I mean, I'll echo what I said earlier about other social media apps learning from Siku. They're really ahead of the game in terms of balancing privacy, which I'm sure many of us can appreciate, and community. Yeah, I, I want to dig deeper. So just how does Siku work on a technical level? I, would, I hope I understand this, but um, these areas of Canada are pretty remote, right? 
They really are. So I made sure to ask Joel about how the app works when you're actually out on the ice and where there would be no cellular coverage at all. So you can go out, you can make your post on the land. It'll automatically get your date, time, GPS coordinates and stuff as a part of making the post. So you just need to put in your pictures and your tags. And, you know, there's custom measurements for different species um, or fields that can be added for each one. And then you save the post on the land. Um, you can edit it before you upload it if you want. You get back to town, you have internet again, and you can upload your post. And so a lot of the architecture was really about thinking about what were the offline online connection, right? And being able to upload stuff later. And um, part of the training stuff is around that too, because most people posting on social networks, you know, you just make your post and you upload it right away, right? Um, so that connectivity was a key piece of uh, the whole architecture. Um, and also, you know, every time someone updates their profile picture or we add a new species or a dialect, that needs to sync, right? So there's a lot of the synchronization through the APIs between the online and the platforms and it being okay that they don't sync immediately when you're offline, but when you come back that they do. And so there's a lot of uh, considerations that went into that architecture. And the nice thing is we have, you know, a pretty amazing platform now and we can provide custom tools to communities and projects that want to add to that, right? And then we're a nonprofit, it's not for sale, um, but we're really working towards a sustainable vision. So you first came to Santa Kilowack as part of your PhD research, but you've been learning about indigenous knowledge ever since. This kind of knowledge of an ecosystem is not necessarily intuitive for non-indigenous people to understand. So what are some of the things that make indigenous knowledge distinctive and how did it figure into the de development of the CQ platform? So we were doing a lot of work and, you know, indigenous knowledge about changes happening. We're inspiring that, but there was more specific things. And an elder who passed away a couple of years ago now, his name is Peter Katuk, was out at the flow edge hunting every day. And in, in our film, People of a Feather, which kind of started our charity, he talks about seeing seals showing up at the flow edge and that he was noticing that the stomach contents of seals was changing from fish to shrimp. Um, another thing he talks about in the film is about their sinking in winter, uh, which they didn't used to, which he knew was an indicator for the salinity changes we were seeing from large-scale hydroelectric impacts. But um, so they knew exactly how deep the seal sank, and they knew where that freshwater layer, the interface between the, the different salinities was based on those seals, right? So quantitative knowledge that was there. But for the for the diets, for example, like the typical approach was – and you would share this with an academic and they'd be like, okay, that's cool. And yeah, that maybe that really helps reflect like these large ecosystem changes that are happening in Hudson Bay associated with climate change, but you don't write it down and it's anecdotal, it's storytelling. So we're going to spend five years or so and do a study to prove what you were saying. And then, you know, five years and a bunch of money later, um, they're like, guess what? You were right. <laughs> and, and you know the the difference was is that sure academics needs this needs the rigorous approach and it needs data and it, it can't be anecdotal i get that with got a phd in biology and math and so my role has been how to help show that what's being written off as anecdotal isn't always anecdotal and there's quantitative data behind it um and so the i the big difference is that scientists have put 
a lot of value on writing everything down in excruciating detail, whereas indigenous knowledge frameworks have been based on oral history and training and around language and stuff like that. Um, and so one of the fundamental differences was that it wasn't being written down. And so the idea was, okay, you know, people are posting their hunting stories on social media all the time. And, you know, the picture speaks a thousand words. And what if, you know, we created a framework where people could take pictures and you could tag an animal the same way as you could tag a person and you can tag indigenous environmental terminology the same way as you could tag a person on Facebook or whatever. Then the data behind every one of those observations would be written down. And if in the right platform, it could be mobilized to help provide equity across the table. So when Inuit are sitting down across the table from government or industry or academics, that they're empowered and not just written off as being anecdotal or storytelling. And so that led to our first pilot study with the CQ app and uh, a lot of the new, the first features and the first testing, you know, the, the whole study was inspired by Peter Katuk's observation about this. And then um, there was hundreds of posts made by Inuit hunters that were hunting seals over the next couple of years. And then Lucas Yargutangnak, the head of the HTA and our founding board member, presented it at the Arctic Net Conference, showing seasonal shifts in the diets of seals from fish to shrimp um, based on the data that was collected, right? And what, so showing the power of like that picture and tagging and, um, and what's possible um, through that sort of approach. And so that was pretty amazing. It was really about Inuit self-determination and like their engagement in every stage of the process um, and really helping implement the National Inuit Strategy on Research here. And we're kind of building on that. So a, a big difference also from it not just being a platform that shares what you see, right? That makes it kind of go to the next level about being really using indigenous knowledge frameworks um, is, is about the language. And so there's three main things where we have profiles or wikis that are taggable on the platform right now that involve environment uh, indigenous terminology. And the first one's place names. The other one is wildlife species, which is pretty straightforward. And the third one is ice type. Uh, we haven't really talked too much about, uh, you know, climate change and changing ice conditions in the, in the community. Um, have, have there been a lot of, has there been a lot of change observed in the ice conditions in, in eastern Hudson Bay? Yeah, for sure. And obviously, uh, Inuit have more details than I do on it, but I've been up there for 20 years and uh, learning a lot from folks. And um, even in the last decade, last five years, uh, it's all over the place. Um, sometimes it's like a lot later freezing up and sometimes it, there's these quick freeze ups that are more episodic and, uh, and it's just a lot less predictable than it used to be. And, uh, so there's been a lot of different changes in the ice that makes it harder for people to, to teach and, and stuff too, and to, to have confidence in the same way to go to some of the, the further distance or more obscure areas than they used to. And, uh, Obviously, that affects food security and, and all that as well. So there's definitely been lots that's changing. And so part of our whole approach is to like allow Inuit to be leading climate change research. They're in the north already. 
you don't have to pay for the carbon footprint of their plane ticket to go back and forth they're out hunting <laughs> let's invest in indigenous communities to lead climate change research because they're really seeing this stuff and uh, on an ongoing basis and can help really provide that sort of data that's going to help their own adaptation but also help um, provide some of this large-scale information about changes in weather and ice and that sort of thing it really pushes the the level of that where they're using their own indigenous knowledge frameworks to document environmental change and climate change and so one thing that's really this is our second year now for the cq ice watch um and it's been all over Inuit so that's Inuit communities from Nunatsiavut Labrador um all the way over to Tuktoyaktuk in the Inuvialut settlement region and from James Bay up to Resolute Bay at scale for the whole north people have been posting about ice conditions to help with local safety but also to help with documenting climate change and um I think we've had over 500 posts now this last year and it's going to be contributing to uh Uvagut weather forecast for Inuit and the weather network is going to be uh, rebroadcasting some of this. And so it's really showing what's possible at large scale for the whole Arctic. I love this idea of really helping indigenous people in the Arctic, but we were actually chatting prior to Henry Cord and Ty, you mentioned that something like Siku could be applicable in all sorts of settings, right? Yeah, I spoke with Joel about it and the technology could, could be applied in all kinds of different situations. The Arctic Eider Society is already beginning to explore how the app could benefit indigenous people in other parts of the world. The same technology could be used to share information about traditional knowledge of desert ecosystems or how changing ocean conditions are impacting the location of, of marine wildlife. That's amazing. That's going to make such a difference for so many communities. So when more apps or more things are built, let's talk about it again. Yeah, I love, I love, I love that idea. We will stay tuned. And all right, folks, well, that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks, Ty, for bringing us this story and to Joel Heath for sharing his work with us. This podcast was produced by Ty with production assistance from Jay Steiner. Audio engineering by Colin Warren. AG would love to hear your thoughts, so please rate and review this podcast. And you can find new episodes in your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. All right. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned earlier, like expensive grocery stores. I just I need to know how how expensive are we talking here? I can remember going to to the northern store in Cambridge Bay and in, in Nunavut and having to pay, I think, twenty eight dollars for two liters of orange juice. And at the time oh I was living on a on a small uh, small ship and we were on an expedition and there was uh, 12 or 13 of us on the ship and we would go out to sea for for about two weeks at a time. And when we did the grocery shopping before we went out, the bill would be somewhere between twenty five and thirty thousand dollars usually. Oh no. Wow. <laughs> I could I don't even I oh my gosh. I just there are no words for that. Oh that's rough. Yeah. Oh it's more than rough. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. And that's why apps like Siku are so important. They help bring food security to a region where, I mean, a lot of people who live there can't afford $28 orange juice and neither can I. 
No, me either. Yeah, good. Uh, definitely, definitely good to have that. 